interested in learning about wine, but not sure where to start? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Cork and Fizz Guide to Wine podcast. I'm your host, Haley Bullman, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm a wine enthusiast turned wine educator and founder of the Seattle-based wine tasting business, Cork and Fizz. It is my goal to build your confidence in wine by making it approachable and lots of fun. You can expect to learn everything from how to describe your favorite wine to what to pair with dinner tonight and so much more. Whether you're a casual wine sipper or a total cork dork like myself, this podcast is for you. So grab yourself a glass and let's dive in. Oh man, today's episode, I am so excited to share this with you. So every month with my court crew, I host a virtual community event. Sometimes these events are workshops hosted by myself or other talented people, but many times they're in the form of a Q&A with someone else in the wine world. Earlier this summer, I took a chance and I invited the author of The Wine Bible, Karen McNeil, to join the court crew. It was a shot in the dark but I figured I couldn't help to ask. Lo and behold, I got an email back from her asking what day and what time. I could not believe my eyes. I was mind blown. The Karen McNeil would be talking to my court crew. If you're not familiar, no worries. I know we're not all crazy wine dorks like me. The Wine Bible is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically one of, if not the best wine resource book out there today. It was first published in 2001, but the third edition was just released in October of 2022. The new edition has beautiful color photos, which just adds to the already incredible information and great writing. Like, it takes a lot to make a resource book really fun to read, and Karen does a great job. It's my go-to resource whenever I'm studying any style of wine. Karen is also an inspiration as a woman in wine and has led the way for more women to get a seat at the proverbial wine table. She's the only American to have won every major wine award given in the English language. These include the James Beard Award for Wine and Spirits Professional of the Year, the Louis Roenderer Award, well, I probably didn't say his name right, for Best Consumer Wine Writing, and the International Wine and Spirits Award as the Global Wine Communicator of the Year. Time Magazine called Karen America's Missionary of the Vine, and she has been named one of the 100 most influential people in wine. So, yeah, she's a pretty big deal. And now you're going to get to tune in to the Q&A hosted with the court crew. In this Q&A, she shares about her life, how she got into wine, and be sure to stick around to the end when she shares some of the best advice that I've heard for a simple thing that people can do when they want to start learning about wine. And of course, if you want to be a part of these conversations live and get to ask your questions, all you have to do is join the court crew. For $26 a month, you get access to community events just like this one and virtual tasting parties where we taste and explore two new wines every month. All right, let's get into it. Hope you enjoy. We're really glad you could come. So thankful you come and chat with us. That was really a shot in the dark when I reached out. I absolutely love the Wine Bible. Love your book. It's one of the first go-tos with my uh, crew here, this court crew. Um, when we're learning about wine, 
I always start with the wine Bible and then go from there when I'm teaching them um, about different wines. So I want to be respectful of your time. So I figured we just dive right into questions um, and learning from you. And then if anybody in the group has questions, feel free to maybe introduce yourself right before you do your question, share like your name and where you're from. And then otherwise, we'll just kind of dive right into questions if that sounds all right. Sounds great. Okay, so I figured might as well start with an introduction. Some of us are more familiar than others with your work, Karen. So do you just want to do like kind of a brief intro who you are and maybe how you got into wine? God, that's an awfully big question. (laughs) You're like, brief intro, sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think that it, it, it sounds too flippant to say that, you know, wine chose you in a way, but I... I often wonder as a wine writer and a wine teacher, sometimes I kind of jokingly think to myself, you know, great, you chose the two lowest paying professions in the entire universe, right? But the the truth is that I always have loved wine and food. I started as a food writer in New York in the late 70s. Even you you can't really start as a a writer. Uh, It takes a long time, first of all, to become a good writer. And second of all, to get published. In my own case, I collected 324 rejection slips before my first article was published, which was on the uh, in the Village Voice. And it was on butter, of all things. And then it was a a kind of slow many year build to to writing about wine because as as you all would know it takes a long time to understand wine well and when I began uh, there was no internet so if you were thinking about you know okay Montagny in France or Merceau or any place. Like where were these places there and and what did they produce? There was no quickly jumping on Google and figuring it all out. You had to either have actually been there or or interviewed someone in person who had. And so as a result of that, I think what what I can teach in a wine class in two hours, often took me five years to to learn on my on my own. The good side about that, I suppose, is that when you when you do teach yourself and when you do teach yourself really painstakingly that way, and the first wine Bible took 10 years to, to write, you you really know your stuff. I mean, it's not like you whipped on to go Google, you know, got an answer and and there you are. So yeah, I the the one last part of this that I will tell is that when I was writing about food, but really wanting, very desperately wanting to also write about wine, I realized that there was no way I could master wine by just trying a single wine here and there. And I was a I was still a very poor food writer. I didn't have a lot of money, and there was there was really no way in. In those days, there were no classes, even in New York City where I lived. And retailers didn't didn't have classes. There was no way to taste. And all of the 
magazines in the country, everything written about wine was written by a small group of about five men. And and they just controlled the entire country. Even magazines that you would think would have had a wine writer, a woman wine writer like Vogue or Good Housekeeping, one of these guys wrote their wine columns. And so one of them was a, was a good friend of mine, and he knew how much I wanted to learn about wine and taste. And so he asked the others if I could come and taste with them. And they were tasting wine every week from the Chianti producers would fly in on Monday and the Bordelais producers would fly in on Wednesday. It was just, it was astounding. Anyway, they took a vote and they decided that I could taste with them on one condition. And that was that I not talk. And so I tasted with those guys for, I don't know, five or six years and didn't talk. You know, I didn't want to give my opinion As far as I was concerned, I, you know, I didn't have a valid opinion yet. But what I wanted to do was ask questions, right? Because again, as you know, the more you know about wine, your list of questions doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. And so I was desperate to ask these guys questions, and they knew so much. But anyway, I had to uh, kind of piece it together for myself. And the The final upshot of this was something quite good, which was that I remembered so clearly and acutely and sometimes even painfully what it meant to not understand wine. And so when I began to write about it, I began to write about it in a very different way. All of these men wrote in sort of the old British, let me tell you what I know kind of way. And the Wine Bible was a very different kind of book. I was on the reader's side. It was very conversational. And it was it really launched a, a, a different genre of kind of wine writing. So, and and I sometimes kind of smile that the Wine Bible has outsold any book that any of those guys has ever written. Oh, you can smile big on that one. <laughs> They were actually very happy for me. And I, you know, I learned a lot from them, in particular, how to be very thoughtful and disciplined. They, these guys were serious. They didn't chat. They didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to tastings and kind of catch up and socialize. They took notes. They were super uh, professional and serious. And I, I always, thank them for that because I adopted their their comportment, their demeanor. Wow. I uh, it, It's really a, a crazy story. And, and it's, I think um, I'll ask one more question and then I want to open it up to the group. So everybody has a chance to ask. And, you know, with all of that said, I'm so curious, like in a, in a time when like, there just weren't women, right. Working in wine or, you know, there wasn't anybody that you were looking up to. What, what was it that like, made you so determined to to work to write about wine to to be in that area or what was it about wine that just really inspired you and you you wanted so bad to write about it you know i think of wine as a companion in a sense it's nice to share wine with other people and of course it is the world's great communal beverage but but we also all know that 
you know, after a long day, you could be standing in your kitchen, you have a glass of wine. It's inspiring. It's wonderful. It's taking nature straight into your body. It's transformative. And the fact that it was so mystical and powerful in that way has always been intriguing to me. I mean, I I also find it very interesting that nobody sort of falls out of love with wine, right? People will will tell you that, you know, they got bitten by the wine bug and, and now they love wine, but nobody ever says, you know what, I'm done. I I, I don't really care anymore. (laughs) I, I don't drink wine. It's very interesting that once it gets into your soul in a way, it's there forever. And when I hear people say, oh, you know, I want to demystify wine, I think, oh, please don't, please. Because the minute wine becomes demystified, it's vodka. Forget it. None of us are going to fall in love with it forever again. It's part, part of its mental high is the fact that it is so intriguingly unknowable. I love that. Okay. I want to open it up. Anybody that's in the group, do you guys have any questions? Yeah, go ahead, Lisa. Hi, I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier and you were talking about your life growing up and how it was difficult. And once you were on your own, I think you were like 14 and a half or so. And you said you drank wine, like you would do your homework and you would drink a glass of wine where at that age, 14 and a half to 15, what did wine represent to you at that age? Like, I would think if I was that age, I would be like, oh, I'm going to have a can of soda because I don't get a can of soda ever. But to you, you chose wine right away. And I wonder if there was something behind that. Did you grow up with wine at all? No, no, certainly not. I was drinking very inexpensive wine, like 89 cent Bulgarian bread, you know, whatever was on sale. German leave from Elsh at a dollar twenty-five a bottle was a big splurge. And I never drank too much because I was too poor. A bottle of wine had to last the whole week, and that meant one glass a night. But it has always seemed to me, even then, maybe from reading novels, that it was such a civilized thing to do. And it I didn't have anyone to tell me not to do it. I mean, I was on my own, I was 15. And I thought, doesn't, you know, I can sit here and do my homework and drink a glass of Bulgarian red wine. It was just a very, it was a way of being civilized. It's a great question. The answer makes a lot of sense. Any other questions from the group before I I move to another one? Yeah, go ahead, Catherine. Hi, Karen. Uh, so I have a question. What are some key trends in the wine industry that you observe since the book's publication? Like, what, from your perspective, how has been those trends and those changes? Yeah, well, the biggest big change has been that there's a real culture of wine in the United States. I mean, when I when I began in the late 70s, I felt like I knew almost everybody in the industry, other than maybe several of the original producers in California. But it was a small place. There were not, I mean, there were maybe three sommeliers in all of New York City. It, it was a very small world. And if you went outside of 
New York or Boston or San Francisco, people were not drinking wine. People were drinking cocktails and then Coke with dinner. So now, of course, it's very different. The whole United States is full of lots of of really great people who really know a lot about wine. You can go to any town or city in the country and there's a great wine list. And so that the the big change has been that there's a real culture of wine, excuse me, in the United States. And in fact, the United States drinks more wine than any other country in the world. But one of the other things that I love about wine is that it's essentially non-trendy. You know, every year in January, some magazine editor will say, can you write like, what were the, what are the upcoming trends on wine? And I always write back and say, there aren't any. Wine is essentially non-trendy, thank God. I mean, you could argue maybe that in the last three years, natural wine has been in the news a lot. And in the last probably seven years, there's been a big resurgence of love of rosé wines. Those things are true. But wine is not like fashion. It does not change season to season because it takes too long to plant, right? It, it's, it's, it's 10 years after you plant a vineyard before you have revenue coming from that vineyard. You may have grapes after four years, but you don't have revenue. So it's essentially a a non-trendy entity. And I, I love that fact about it. All right. I have a question from one of the gals who couldn't be here. She's traveling right now. She's going to try to call in, but she said connection was not great. But she sent some questions. And one of hers was, what wine region surprised you or impressed you the most throughout your journey when you were writing your book? Yeah, I I, th- I think that the one of the most amazing areas for, for wine is champagne. And the reason champagne is so amazing is that it's it's di- the place itself is diametrically opposed to what the wine represents. The wine represents, you know, energy and good feelings and celebration and all those kinds of things. But champagne was especially during World War One and Two right in the demilitarized zone. I mean, it was completely devastated in both of those wars. And because it was historically so hard to to grow uh, grapes that far north, in fact, the Romans never even tried to grow grapes as far north as Champagne, because as they pointed out, no olive trees grew there. And the wisdom of the ancient world was that you could only plant grapevines as far north as olive trees would grow. So here you have this very celebratory wine, but the people themselves are kind of almost depressive. They're, it's a really serious place with a lot of kind of dark psychology behind it. So it's very fascinating from a, a psychological standpoint because there's no like joie de vivre. There's no, it's not happy like Tuscany. It's a really serious place. And I, I loved that dichotomy. Oh, so cool. 
Do you ever feel like you're stuck in a rut, doing the same old thing day in and day out? You wake up, go to work, come home, go to bed, and repeat. When life gets busy, it can be easy to fall into that routine and forget how important it is to prioritize joy and fun. But what if I told you there was a way to break out of that cycle? A way to bring more excitement and adventure into your life. And it involves one of the most wonderful things in the world, wine. Introducing my Court Crew Virtual Tasting Club. This is not your ordinary wine club. This is a community of people who are passionate about exploring new flavors, learning about different wine styles, and having fun along the way. Each month, we'll select two styles of wine to focus on. We'll taste them together virtually, all while learning more about the regions that the wines are from and the grapes that make the wine. You'll also have the opportunity to meet winemakers, sommeliers, and other wine professionals through our monthly community events. But it's not just about the wine. It's about breaking out of your routine, trying new things, and having a little fun. Imagine being able to impress your friends at your next dinner party with your newfound wine knowledge. Feeling confident when you walk into a wine shop, knowing exactly what to look for and what you'll enjoy. Imagine adding a little bit of excitement to your everyday life. So why not do something for you? Come join the Court Crew Virtual Tasting Club and start exploring the endless sea of discovery and joy that is the world of wine. Sign up at my website, corkandfizz.com slash the court crew. And don't forget to use code wine101 to get your first month free. And now back to the show. Okay. More questions from the group. Anybody else have a question they want to ask? I'm curious, and I know this is a sort of specific question here, but I know you were talking before about the uh, tastings that you did when you were getting into wine with that group of five men. I'm guessing one of them was Hugh Johnson, maybe, but I'm just curious who 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 they are, if if that's something you can say. Yeah, no, not Hugh was not because Hugh's in London and I was in New York. And so these were people like Frank Pryle and Howard Goldberg from the New York Times, Alex Bezpaloff, Ron Fonte, Robert Finnegan. These were all New York-based wine writers. Makes sense. All right. Going off of the, the Wine Bible again, another question. I guess, what was the hardest part? When I know it's like you're like all of it. What was the hardest part? when writing the wine Bible? The initial hard part is just figuring out how to organize a book that big, right? Because you think, oh my God, this is an elephant. Like, where where do you start? And uh, you don't write a book like that starting from the beginning and then going to the end in sequential order necessarily. And I, I, I quickly realized that I needed to write something hard, then write something easy, like write Bordeaux, then write Oregon or, or something. Although Oregon's gotten more complex. But the very first time around, I made the huge mistake of leaving Italy to the end. And Italy is total chaos. You just want to write, what? what? The Italy is, it's, you know, it's lovable chaos but it is complete wine chaos. 
And trying to make sense of Italy was, this time I, I just finished the third edition this past fall. Came, it came out. This time I put Italy really close to the front <laughs> of my writing because I'm like, Italy is going to put me right over the edge again. I know it. And so you can do Italy and then Germany back to back, though, because the Germans are so good. They really, it's complicated, but they're exact about it. Whereas Italy, uh, yeah. So figuring out how to write a book that big was hard. And then figuring out how to, once when you're a writer, once you jump on that gerbil wheel, you cannot stop. Because if you stop, you really will stop. It's just too hard. So you also have to know that you are now going to set aside four or five years of your life in addition to running your business. And you're going to keep going because you have to sustain that kind of energy. One of the things that I invented in the Wine Bible, and now a lot of books do, is have all these hundreds of side boxes. And so even if, I don't know, I was deep into research on Hungary, say, or something, and the research was tough, I could write a side box on the, on paprika or or something fascinating that ultimately tied back into, into wine. So, I mean, I have my own, uh, you know, I, I'm a really intense researcher and, and I'm kind of maniacal about research. So I have my own kind of intense way of doing that. But once once you start, I knew early on that once I started, I had to keep going. That is fair. Wow. Other questions from the group as we're getting kind of towards the end here? I was just wondering how many of the places have you visited that you have written about? All of them. You have gone to all of them. I need to go back again to a lot of them because a lot of them are changing radically now. And so before I would ever do Wine Bible 4, I feel like I'm still recovering from Wine Bible 3. But yeah, there are, and and of course, during COVID, I couldn't go. So probably none of us have traveled very much in the last three years, but I'm anxious to start going again. What's the country kind of at the top of that list or the wine region, I should say, at the top list that you think has had like the biggest change since you visited? Probably Sicily. Sicily was... You know, it made tons and tons. Many for many years, it was the biggest producer in Italy, but it was also a very poor part of Italy, and mostly cheap wine was made there. But Sicily has a lot of very fantastic, now being discovered indigenous varieties, and it's undergoing a huge renaissance of quality in part funded by EU money, uh, European Union money. And yeah, Italy, I mean, uh, Sicily has really transformed itself for sure. Cool. So fun. Okay. Well, we're just about at time. Catherine, I saw you unmuted yourself. Did you have any other questions to ask before we, before we go? Yeah, one more. What advice do you have for someone looking to deepen their appreciation to the wine, but they just want to be and it's not covering your book, but just want to be kind of enthusiastic. 
Hmm. I think there are two things that I would say. One is that we we all try to kind of advance our knowledge, whether deeply or even just lightly, by just having some wine with dinner, and maybe we choose a different wine, um, and maybe occasionally we taste with friends. But that's really hard to do because because you you never develop a frame of reference. So I always suggest to people who are learning about wine that they, you know, find a retail store or an online retail place. And for a month, say, or maybe even better, two months, drink only the wine from one place. Could be any place. Doesn't matter. Spain, New Zealand, could be any place. But only drink wine from that place. And then in two months, go to another place and do this for two years. In two years, you will realize that, oh, you have a feel for Spanish wine. You really, because you, you, you developed your palate by only thinking about that wine. And uh, it's when you, one night you have New Zealand and the next night you have Italy and the next night you have France. It's, it's you, your head never organizes all of those taste memories in a way that is helpful. And the second thing is, if you can, instead of at least a few times a week, don't have one wine, have two. Whenever you have two wines, whether you even want to or not, you'll find yourself comparing them, right? You'll be like, oh, this one's really very tannic and this one's really acidic or, or whatever it is. And it's hard to do that with one wine. With one wine, you it takes a lot of practice to, to be able to taste a single wine without anything to compare it to and really know what's going on. We're all always better in comparative sets. So... Um, those two things, I think, are really helpful in establishing a kind of taste memory so that when you then go to a restaurant and you look at the wine list, you're like, "Ooh, I know this wine. I know what it tastes like. It's A wine list is always a good barometer of that. Also, thank you, Karen. Yeah, what a great question and such a good answer. I love how approachable those are too, right? Just trying wine. I've heard that before of like focusing on one region and just trying those wines or just trying one variety and then the comparison. Yeah, I think that's super fun. Well, I just want to say thank you, uh, Karen, for joining us. I want to be respectful of your time, um, but also as if there's anything else you want to share, I'll make sure I have a follow-up email coming up. I'll let everybody know about the newsletter um, that you send out every week so folks can join that. But is there anything else you want to share with this group? Anything coming up in your world? Well, are you all in the wine business or you're all consumers who love wine? Mostly consumers that love wine. Some of us have are taking it maybe a little further into the hobby world, probably more wine enthusiasts than, than uh, working in the wine world. That's very good. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. If you are ever, you know, interested in, getting into the wine business. The one thing that I notice a lot is that people begin to think about that idea, but then they kind of walk around the pool for years. And, and you, you can't do that. You just have to jump in the pool. It does not matter even where. It could be the simplest thing, right? But because there is no path. 
I mean, I myself had no path, right? I created my own path by just by doing. And so I know it's it's enticing to think maybe that, oh, you have to do X first, or you have to go to Y school, or you have to get a WSET number two, or none of that is important. What's important is to just jump in the pool anywhere and start. Great advice. All right. Thank you again so much, Karen, for joining. Really loved learning from you. It was, it was really an honor. I, like I said, the book is life-changing and it was so fun to get to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cork and Fizz Guide to Wine podcast. If you have not already, go check out the Wine Bible. It is an amazing resource and Karen just does such a beautiful job of sharing the information about the wine and making it approachable, but also making it interesting. You know, there are, there are sections in there she kind of talked about where like it was important for her to not just talk about the wine, but to talk about the culture as well. And hey, if you like this sneak peek into the court crew, I'd love for you to join for the real thing. Head to my website, corkandfizz.com slash the court crew to join today and use code wine 101 to get your first month free. If you love this episode as much as I did, you know the drill. Please take a second, rate it, leave a review, take a screenshot, share it on your social media, and of course, share it with all the wine lovers in your life so they can listen as well. In next week's episode, I'll be sharing some new wines for you to try, but there's a little twist. They're going to be based off of your favorites. So if you find yourself wanting to try something new, but aren't sure where to start, this episode will be for you. Thanks again for listening. And as a thank you, I'd like to share my free shopping guide, 15 wines under $15. Simply head to my website, corkandfizz.com, scroll to the bottom and join my mailing list. Cheers.